All right, hey guys, and welcome to the Three Drinks In podcast, episode number 258. I'm your host, Vince. Over there is your host, Phil. Hello. Jesus. There he is. Uh, in this episode, we are talking about Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. But before we get started, we want to ask you to please subscribe to the podcast on any of our streaming services. Not that they're ours, but we're on them, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, to name a few. Uh, make sure that you leave us a five-star rating and maybe even a review. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 3 Drinks in Pod. You can like us on Facebook and you can email us at 3 Drinks in Podcast at gmail.com. Last of all, don't forget to check out our merchandise over at tpublic.com. All right. Puss in, it's Puss in Boots. He's in the boots. Not and boots. Right. Because it can go either way. Well, no. He's not carrying them around with him. I guess. Like I'm, I'm here and my shoes are here. Yeah, but... No one says that. <laughs> like I'm here in my coat, not like with my coat. You know? <laughs> so I literally paid no attention to the Shrek expanded universe. Like we saw Shrek and it was adorable and kind of subversive because it was sort of anti-Disney because Jeffrey Katzenberg really didn't like Michael Eisner. Um. And then I didn't pay attention till like I saw Shrek the Musical on Broadway, which was fun. Hmm. But there's been like a lot of these movies. There was there were three Shrek movies at least, and I guess there were multiple Puss in Boots movies. There's four Shrek movies. Four, and there's a uh, two now. Now there's two Puss in Boots movies. And there were like there was like a show on Netflix or something about it with Antonio Banderas. Yeah, he's played this part the whole time. He hasn't yeah. given that up. Well, I'm sure it's easy to do. Oh yeah, and, no, I mean uh, this this kind of work is not sort of time consuming. It's one of those I always like laugh about like how many people are in these these movies. Whereas thirty years ago, if you were a, like a serious actor working in Hollywood, it was like. You didn't. You you wouldn't even dare. It was such a below your pay grade thing to do. A, but then someone realized it's so easy and it's so much money. It's so much money. I mean, it was basically you know Robin Williams as the genie just blew the doors off the place, and it was just like you can put a really famous person in this role, and it'll make everyone a gajillion dollars. Well, yeah. I mean, we've talked about that where it's like yeah. he he was the the one that broke the doors open. And everyone just assumed that getting those people was what brought the money in and not just the fact that Robin Williams was really talented at it. Yeah. And the part was made for him. You know, like they, they drew him in the styles of Robin Williams' wacky, zany uh, comedy stylings. So, like, it was perfect for him. But then when you watch The Shark Tale with uh, Will Smith, you're like, what is this? This is awful. <laughs> Yeah. I think that was a DreamWorks movie or, or, or one of them. I don't know. But, um, you know, I, I, when I first saw Shrek, Mike Myers was the big draw, but Eddie Murphy and Cameron Diaz and John Lithgow, like they were okay. But like, to me, 
that was not why I went to see the movie. It just happened to be that they were really famous people voicing the characters. And, yeah. and that just is the standard now. So. Yeah, and I mean, we've had this conversation a lot in terms of you know talking about these kind of movies. But you know what? What I've come to believe, essentially, is that like we've all suffered a lack of, I don't know, like we we we've missed out on really great voice performances because. For some reason, you know, either people will go to see a movie because a famous person is doing a voice or the executives think they will. But there, there is a talent to voice acting that is really unique and it's not transferable necessarily. I mean, Mark Hamill, you know, is both a very... No, actually, he's a reasonably talented screen actor and a very talented voice actor you know there are some people who can do both but by and large you kind of have to pick one or the other there's not a whole lot of people that can Bo Jackson this and do both it's it's sort of you know there's two very unique skills and you know Williams was you're right like they they tailored the whole thing for him it was the first time that 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 that, that had happened but the more I look back at this and I think about all the people who were in this movie, was it helped that Ray Winstone voiced one of the bears? I mean, I think Olivia Coleman is one of the best actors in the last 20 years. I mean, she's just unbelievably great in everything she is in. And I don't think it really needed to be in this movie. Like, Florence Pugh did not need to be in this movie. Like, it's not necessary. Antonio Banderas, I can kind of see... The argument, especially because he's played the role for so long now, that it's identified with him and his voice, and 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 he's made a character out of that voice. And you know, believe it or not, his voice has been you know moving his career along for longer than, than maybe he even realizes. But I don't know. I think it's kind of sad that we 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 get we don't get the opportunity to hear all the people from the. Uh, the, the John DiMaggio movie, you know, I Know That Voice, which is a great documentary about uh, about voice actors. And, you know, we, you know, I remember like John DiMaggio was in, what's it called? Zootopia. I saw his name in the credits. I was like, oh, right, who was he? Yeah, he played a, like, bullshit character who was on screen for three seconds that just kind of went like, blah, 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 blah. Like, he didn't make any real sounds. And Jason Bateman gets to waltz on and just, you know, be himself for two hours. And like, here, I'm, I made a movie. Give me $9 million. And I don't know why people don't realize that you could probably have these people for a song and make a better movie that kids will like and sell more toys with McDonald's. Like, why are you bothering to pay all these, you know, A-list actors top dollar and get, you know, at best mediocre performances? Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just what they do. It's just a thing now. And I'm more aware of that when I watch it. Because I was watching it and Florence Pugh plays uh, Goldilocks. And I thought she stunk. Like, I didn't think she was that good at all. I was like, she's just... You can tell she's an actress doing something she's not used to doing. Like, the line readings felt stilted. 
and a little bit like distant. Like she knew she was in a booth, probably not with those other people. Yeah. You know, I was like, she doesn't sound good. She doesn't seem, doesn't feel natural. And like, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just because I know who the actor is and you kind of play that game like, oh, I know that voice, which is why that was a great title for that uh, documentary. But it's just like you begin to picture them in the booth. Right. You don't like what they want you to do. Right. They don't want you to focus on the on the story. So for like and and again, that's just a thing for adults. The kids are going to watch whatever you put in front of them, I guess. But like, yeah, I mean, does the kid care as Florence Pugh? (laughs) Probably not. No, they don't. And so it's really for the adults, I guess. And so I guess what I, I just. I, I think I think back to the My Disney. question is what the hell? Yeah, like seriously. <laughs> you mean and what I don't get is it's like you see what works. We have a track record in the early 90s and or rather beginning in 89 with Disney and The Little Mermaid and like the only like, Okay, so James Earl Jones. Kind of a big draw. I get you. Fine. Jeremy Irons Sure, fine. Like they're following Aladdin. Jeremy's iron. Yeah. <laughs> Just anyway, it's a good joke. Yeah. And like, okay, you know, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, but like it, it the rest of it worked. But the Little Mermaid, Aladdin, having someone do the singing voice and someone do the speaking voice, like, you know, Paige O'Hara doing Bell. I mean, these were not people anybody knew. It's my same rant about like musicals when they make musicals into films and they cast Russell Crowe. I mean, Jesus, the people just, you know, who, who leave more talent, you know, on the, on the floor of their shower than, than Russell Crowe has for singing songs. And I mean, you, you, you would make a better product. Now the, I guess the answer is you wouldn't be able to market it. Okay, but every now and again, you'll you'll you know you find that like you can slow burn a movie like I don't know Greatest Showman. There's a bunch of other options here, like a movie that had legs and went on forever because it was good and people want to go see it. I don't know why, and it's probably because I'm stupid. People don't think if you spend a lot of money making a good movie and making it good, that eventually it won't make money. Uh, well, and everyone's in a rush to, to make, make money. It, it's hard to make a good movie. <laughs> Un, undeniable. I guess my point is that, like, if you just waited longer, you'd make more money and you'd make better movies. Be longer what? Like to sell a movie over time. Oh, like well, you know, Greatest Showman, which is not a great movie, but it did make money over time versus like the giant box office opening weekend thing. That's what everyone is chasing all the time, you know. And this is a relatively not new, but it's you know compared to thirty years ago. You know, I mean, nowadays it's you have to make your money that way. Yeah, because nobody's gonna want to do it. No one's gonna want to take their kids to the movies when I can just put on Bluey for nine hours. You know, no. like. You got to drag them to the car, pay the money, buy the popcorn. So you got to get them in there. You got to hook them in. So that's not really a viable way of doing it anymore. Like, well, word of mouth will really make this movie better as a cartoon. But that's only parents also, you know, like because the parents are taking the kids. So it's not like the kids on the playground are like, you got to see this movie. Because no matter how much a kid badgers someone, if they're not getting driven there, it's not going to happen. 
I just don't think it's a it's a coincidence that almost everything of quality begins as a slow burn. You know, the you know, the career of Adele, Bluey that you brought up. Like we all heard about Bluey in drips and drabs, and we turn around, I'm like, oh my god, there's this amazing short form television for kids, which is not only, you know, incredibly poignant and, you know, gut wrenching, but very well made and funny and engaging and like you know, most good things happen slowly. They don't come out of the gate and are instantly recognizable for their for their genius. You have to think about things for a minute. And I don't think it's a I think it's unavoidable. I think this is the industry now and I'm not really a part of it. I'm just a you know, which is two Yahoos from nowhere commenting on it. But I think that it's stupid to to have the you know, the platform to comment on it and, and not point out like, you know, if if you don't cram it down someone's throat with you know, and then you know front front load it with celebrities, you might end up with a better product. And if you don't care, then you don't care, and that's fine. And we'll sure they don't care. And we'll spend our time sifting through it until we can find things that we that that we enjoy. But it's just it's disappointing. So, so puss in boots, puss in boots. <laughs> Thirteen and a half minutes later. Uh, yeah. Uh, what do you think of Puss in Boots? I loved Puss in Boots. I had a is the film benefits from not like low expectations because like I heard it was good and everyone is surprised and oh my goodness they made a decent movie out of this third installment or second installment of the you know, of the Puss in Boots extended universe and fine but I don't know I. I thought it was simple and effective and incredibly engaging and it was visually very attractive. It didn't didn't look like hot garbage, which was nice. <laughs> Always appreciative. Yeah, like the uh, like the ending of the glass onion with that, that CGI fire which we which we just didn't talk about, but I remember going, yeah, that did look like it was done on a on an iMovie. And someone's like, you know, MacBook Air. But um, it was good. Like, it was, by the way, I should point this out, not a kid's movie. Even a little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, we can get to that part. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll cover that in a bit. But no, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, you know, it was clearly structured... Antonio Banderas really enjoys playing this character, it seems, and so he has a lot of fun with it. The people who've been writing for Puss in Boots, I, I, I can't think of the name of the podcast that I used to listen to, but um, I think it was like a Star Trek-y podcast. You, you, you might have told me to, to give him a listen, and I just can't think of the name, but it was populated by a bunch of guys who were Star Trek fans in Hollywood, and they kind of all had odd jobs around town, and one guy was a, you know, a writer for Puss in Boots, whatever Netflix show he was doing. And so, like, there were good people writing for that uh, for that TV show, and I think that they found good people to write this movie as well because it was, you know, it was pretty well done. What do you think? Uh, I also thought it was really good. I I saw a clip of it on um, 
I saw the reviews that were good. I was like, oh, that looks interesting. <laughs> a good Puss in Boots movie. <laughs> and um, it seems funny to say it. We keep saying it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't, expectations were low. And um, I saw clips of it on like uh, Twitter or something where they were like, I, I can't believe what this cartoon is doing. It's supposed to be for children. <laughs> I saw the clip and I was like, oh my God, that's really intense. It was with, I think it's the first time he meets death in the bar oh yeah <laughs> so i watched that scene and i was like this is a kid's movie with puss in boots like what the <laughs> hell the first time he meets death in the bar like yeah. that's not a line you would think you would say for a children's movie yeah like how was how is this not like you know a tarantino film or something and, <laughs> and it was it was or a, fascinating. Or a coen brothers movie you know like so i was like is, what is this movie even about <laughs> So I looked into it and I was like, I think I should watch this. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised at, um, you know, how mature it could be. It, it didn't like hold your hand or talk down to you. Um, but yeah, it was. And the animation style was different. It was more like um, into the Spider-Verse type of thing. Yeah. It came in and out of that. Like for the most part, like the dialogue scenes were fairly straightforward CGI. But once you got into action, like the whole mode would change. Yeah, the act, it was more for the action. Yeah, which was sort of not like it really. Like somebody was, I don't know who it was. I, I might have been a thing I was reading or a podcast they were talking about. Just the, um, you know, the amount of CGI work that is necessary in Hollywood these days, and there just simply isn't enough talent, or even just bodies to do all the work. And so, whereas we used to be really wowed by special effects 30 years ago, we look at things now and go, hmm, this looks like garbage, all of it, just not very good. If every movie ever made now requires a fair amount of CGI, yeah, you, there's, you're going to spread yourself too thin as far as the talent pool. And um, I was you know, appreciative that they didn't try to do like the hyper-realistic thing here, and they went for something a bit more artistic just to say, hey, we can use the visuals to, you know, be purposely specific in telling stories, and, you know, what's going to give yeah. you a better sense of motion and speed and excitement in an action, you know, cartoon? And I, I appreciated that it was not so kinetic that I couldn't follow it which was my biggest complaint against the Spider-Verse film. And like the Lego movie was the same directors, Phil Lord and whatever the other guy's name. Mm. The action was so crazed and quick that it was, it for me, I mean, I'm older. It became impossible to follow. It became noise, you know, like characters are, they're flipping and the camera's flipping and the, and the colors are changing. So you're like, what the hell is even happening? But like in this one, it's just not that fast. It's fast, you know, it's 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 fun, but it's not so crazy that I'm like getting a headache, which I enjoyed. Uh, I thought it was good. It was it was fun to watch. It was funny. Uh, Antonio Banderas obviously is very good. Um should we talk about death? <laughs> yeah, I guess we have to. <laughs> I, I can't get over how good and well designed that character and the story around him is yeah i'm blown away by it yeah. i've watched it like 10 times I'm like this is so good it's i mean it's I, I think what i said to my wife at the end of it was just like 
this is so much better than it has any right to be. Like, is it was this the third movie or the second movie? Doesn't really matter. But I'm just curious now. For for Puss in Boots, yeah, this is the second one. So the second Puss in Boots movie, which is a spinoff of the four series worth of of Shrek movies, contains an archetypal character like Death, portrayed, you know, sort of unabashedly, like he's got scythes, and he, you know makes the character bleed in very slow and profound ways. And, you know, it's complex and it's, you know, it's, I mean, I think you, you bring this up as sort of like one of your benchmarks a lot. It's like, you don't talk down to the audience. They don't tell you who he is. The audience as, as adults, we know what's going on. Like, it's not complicated to us as as adults. Oh, yeah, like I figured it out immediately. I was like, "Oh, this is like the Grim Reaper or something." Yeah, it's very very clear. But here's the thing: like, just because something is old and unsurprising and easily identifiable, doesn't mean it's bad. Sometimes that's better. Like you know, I always think of Barney Stinson's like, "New is always better." And that's what I always feel is. People in Hollywood try to say, like, oh, no, no, this is all new. It's all better. Like, Well, those are not synonyms. I don't know what you're talking about. Sometimes we we kind of long for the stuff that we can recognize. There are only a handful of stories in the whole of the human brain. It's just, you know, I don't know. You, you know more than me about story structure, but this is a very recognizable character. And we latch on to it, and we're almost like, oh, I kind of feel good about what's going to happen. Like, this could be interesting. But, you know, whatever they do, they can't screw it up once they've established the relationship between the arrogant and formerly nearly immortal cat and the dog <laughs> who is there to, you know, combat that personality with the cold reality of the world. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. And um, he's not in it all that much. No, yeah. But he's a he's a good, you know, he's a good motivating factor. He's like a really he's like not the MacGuffin. He, it's a different way of explaining it. But you know, he's the impetus behind everything because he's the reminder that Puss in Boots now only has one life left because he frit- fritted away the other eight, and so the death shows up for him for the last one. And he doesn't understand why he doesn't even realize it till the end, but he realizes I could die now at any minute. And that would be the, it, that would be it for me. So I have to somehow get my life back. And it it's an internal battle that, you know, like any horror movie, you want to stay alive. You don't, every horror movie is how do I not die? <laughs> Which is what this is. How, how do I extend my life and continue living the way I always have? And I, at the end, he has to realize that he needs to change. And there is no escaping death, no matter what, at the end anyway. So how do I live a good life and be a different person to stave that off? And that's a very heady concept that doesn't have to beat you over the head. And death doesn't have to show up every five minutes to like fight him and and give him a hard time. And like, he's just sort of there, you know, and I was reading the trivia and they said, like, you can see death in certain scenes in the beginning of the movie when he's fighting like that gigant, like the giant, you know, and, and then he gets crushed by the little bell. Like, <laughs> like death is there watching him, you know, like that's all it needs to be. 
there are other secondary antagonists, you know, Jack Horner and all those other characters. Like they're moving the plot. It's death that's moving the story. And it's just extremely well done that way. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you, you have you have two things happening simultaneously. And, you know, he carries the secret with him the entire time and all the characters sort of don't don't really understand, you know, what's driving him and only you and he do. And that's kind of a nice thing in this movie. It's like, like when when you have a secret with your main character, when you understand his motivation and the rest of the characters in the film don't, that can be corny because you're like, you, like you kind of look around like, well, I know why he's doing all these things. Why haven't they figured it out kind of a thing? But when it's such a deeply personal thing, then you develop a connection with that character that you might not normally have. If you don't have, you know, if everybody in the story knows everything that's going on, then the audience has, 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 nothing, has nothing to do but observe. But if you know, you're aware of things about the story based on your relationship with the main character. And it's up to the other ancillary characters to discover that over time. You know, you, you really feel like you're going on the journey with your main character. And it, it just it, forming that connection makes everything much more personal to you and it makes it much more interesting. You know. Mm -hmm. I, I was at, and it's, fortuitous timing because i was teaching uh emily dickinson poetry because i'm an english teacher oh jesus christ I, well hey you know but to be fair i've never really read emily dickinson poetry i've only read bits and pieces it's you good <laughs> you should read it's not it's, bad you know it's not bad uh, you know it has its moments and there was the poem about death you know that one and <laughs> oh right right the one and the, the you know the death appears as a a man with a horse drawn carriage who picks up people and takes them to their graves where they stay for all of eternity. <laughs> and I said, like, I gave them a question, you know, what would you imagine death to be like? And then I gave them the example. For example, in Puss in Boots, the last wish, <laughs> death appears as a giant red eyed wolf. Like, <laughs> and I showed them the clip and everything. I was like, see, it can still be done. Hundreds of years later, we're still talking about this. Yeah. It's just a, an innate human thing to wonder about death and how can you stave it off, you know? And it's fantastic at the end when they duel one more time. And like at that point, Puss in Boots has sort of, you know, accepted who he is and how he has to change and be a better person and to live life at the end. And the wolf cuts like right up at his face. And he was like, you know, I, I came here to get this running oil little cat. And I don't see that person anymore. Oh, I know. That was so good. <laughs> I was like, holy shit. That was this so amazing. good. He goes, it, so, you know, enjoy your last life. But I'll see you again. And he goes, yeah, I know. Like, yeah. It gets to all of us at the end. Yeah. I mean, that's. Okay. That. That that's important for a variety of reasons. I mean, primarily because it's consistent with the story and it, it sort of makes sense. But second, but but you know, in in an almost more important way, I would think you don't want to have but in another more accurate way. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't want to have you know, like the final battle syndrome. Like Marvel movies are great about that. 
But even at the end of like Avengers Endgame, the whole thing just seems kind of bananas, you know. And I do, I do like what they did with you know with the killing of Tony Stark and the way that they that they figured that out. But at the same time, it's like every movie has to end like this, and this movie starts off its ending like okay, we're gonna have this showdown. But the ending of the showdown is not the vanquishment of one thing, but the acceptance of 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 reality in a cartoon with a talking cat wearing boots. <laughs> He's got a hat too. Yeah. And you know, I'm a big fan of the phrase that human nature has no history. And so I I I appreciate your your reference to to you know teaching Emily Dickinson who lived I don't know how long ago but not recently. No, <laughs> it was a while. <laughs> you know, but between Emily Dickinson and Edgar Allan Poe and William Shakespeare and you know uh, Homer, <laughs> you know, you just keep going back. We're still just telling the same few stories, and. They work because they work, you know. And while human nature has no history, individual people certainly do. And so, the more you expose new people to these old ideas, like they just, you know, time is a flat circle. It just goes around and around again. And then, and that, it's up to us to find, you know, creative ways to tell the same stories as opposed to, you know, trying to think we're smarter than the than the rest of them and create something new. You know, right? I think I think David Foster Wallace had the best chance of doing that, and and it killed him. Well, yeah, much like Emily Dickinson drove <laughs> herself a little nuts. <laughs> you know, you you can be a little obsessed with death. It's just, you know, what kind of story do you want to tell, and how do you want to tell it? And that's the key to all that sort of stuff. So, but it wasn't. It wasn't the main thrust of the film where he was battling death every five minutes. He also had to fight Big Jack Horner. Ah, yes. And his baker's dozen. (laughs) Kind of a weak point of the story, I would say. Yeah, all right. So here's here's the problem that these Shrek movies have is that in the first one, it was a send up of Disney and the magic kingdom and everything it was michael eisner's giant middle finger to disney after he left katzenberg katzenberg right i'm sorry giant middle finger giant green middle finger how can i start my own studio and and screw them and you know they they parted on bad terms and it worked fine shrek was a really big hit and it was funny and all the fairy tale creatures were being parodied okay great but when it came time for more shrek (laughs) You can really only poke the mouse so many times, <laughs> you know? So they ended up kind of getting saddled with fairy tale creatures, you know? Like that just became part of the of the universe of Shrek. There was always princesses and funny gags about Pinocchio and all these other things. And to make up the other half, they had to do pop culture references and jokes. And those got stale and dated, I mean, as soon as you make them like a computer out of the box you know they're just that's just the way they are and 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 on and on so like even the third and the fourth trek they, they were just stuck with pop culture and here's another fairy tale creature that we can just throw at you so by this point you know now we're scraping 
And that's one of the jokes is that he he's technically a nursery rhyme. He's not a fairy tale, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So like it felt like they had to do some sort of fairy tale creatures to put in here with Goldilocks and the bears and, and you know, sure, uh, it's like something they kind of get stuck to, and all the non fairy tale stuff like all the his, you know the Spanish little townies in and all that stuff like it gave it a real sense of place versus like the land of far far away. Yeah, I was like, well, they should just stuck with this. You don't have to make it little Jack Horner, you know, sucking his thumb in the core, whatever the nursery rhyme is. I don't really know. Or Goldilocks and the Bears. Like, it doesn't have to be these characters. Can't they just make new characters? But I guess they felt that they had to sort of stick them in there. And it was definitely a weak part of the movie. But what saves it is that the jokes are pretty good. Okay, for example. (laughs) So... John Mulaney plays Big Jack Horner. He owns like the bakery where he sells pies and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's jealous that he doesn't have any magic abilities. And they show a quick flashback where he's like a little kid doing a dance to sell pies in his like parents' little trailer. There's like a couple people watching and he looks over and there's Pinocchio. It's like, you know, the magic puppet and he's got a huge crowd. And he looks over, he goes, that's not fair. I've been a real boy this whole time. What's the big deal? And he gets all mad. <laughs> yeah and i giggled i was like yeah like if you were stupid and you didn't understand the appeal of that it's like (laughs) pinocchio's thing is like i want to be a real boy and he's like well i am a real boy and no one's watching me (laughs) you know so there's enough gags to sort of like hold it together a little bit so that you can go i mean it's better than making fun of like starbucks like in shrek 2 and and you know things like that like there weren't that many pop culture gags that made me go Ugh, really that was funny eight months ago yeah you know that, so. yeah, the, it, the, the, it, yeah it didn't have any of that like it was more timeless stuff about this and it was less sort of recent things where like you know the things wouldn't age well yeah kind of thing I mean I also don't like John Mulaney's voice I think he was a I like John Mulaney and his voice. Like he was fine in Spider Verse. You heard he was he he was the pig, right? Yes, and he was okay in that. Here he felt he felt off, like Florence Pugh. Like he, it wasn't the right fit for that look or that kind of whiny character. No, it doesn't. I mean, look, I think he's hilarious as a you know as a writer. He's extraordinarily funny. As a stand-up, I think he's great. He's been through a lot, it seems too. Like personally, like he, you know, he apparently had like a massive drug problem and needed to go through rehab. And you know, just you know, he's you know, it's one of those like sort of fortunate people who's had a very difficult go of things. And um, and as and it's made him very funny, but it's also you know he's, he's had a, a weird sort of trip through Hollywood. But yeah, this is not a good idea for him. Like I don't think he was he was appropriately cast in this. I think that you know like that kind of character. I mean, his voice suits a very normal looking person. He jokes like I look like a twelve year old in a suit. Like I don't look like a you know I look like a very boring person who just just looks young. You know, Jack Horner, the, the the way he was drawn, it just didn't it didn't work. And something about that, like I remember when when they made Shrek the 
you know, they had a whole behind the, the scenes thing about how the animators would actually go in and watch the voice actors perform and they base their drawings on on that. And there's something to that. I mean, like, I, I think it was the Final Fantasy movie that were like, they didn't pay any attention to who was playing whom and all the voices uh, yeah. didn't didn't look right. Well, that would explain the myriad amount of problems that film had. Yeah, but like, you know, like Steve Buscemi was playing like a young person. I'm like, you know, this doesn't work. And you said the whole thing about, you know, Sigourney Weaver, who's in, who's in her 70s. And like the guy from... Um, oh, I still cringe at that. Yeah. <laughs> That's awful. <what's, laughs> like the guy from uh, from Pitch Meetings who was talking about, is there any going to be a problem with the senior citizen's voice in this young person's body? And he went, hey, shut up. <laughs> hey, shut up. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> I love that guy. That guy's hilarious. How's that going to work? Unclear. So they're going to do this. <laughs> yeah, that guy's very good. Why does that happen? So the movie can happen. So the movie can happen. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the same joke over and over again, but it's funny because it's a different movie. Like it's just, I know, you know, it's just the same five minute gag. It's, yeah, it's, it's uh, I always laugh. It's oh, I, it's, it's brilliant. Um, yeah, so it, the, the voice didn't match, and it and I and I think that was a you know, and it was also kind of like oddly smarmy. Like that character shouldn't be able to be smarmy. It's so over the top. You know, don't you know I'm dead inside? Like that's a that's a you know it's a bizarre line for that character to give, and it was written for John Mulaney, so that's like that's a line he would say. But like, yes, we know you're dead inside. You look terrifying. Like, there's nothing about you that wouldn't suggest that you were dead inside. <laughs> you know, whereas if you if John Mulaney said that in his like smart suit and you know, hairsprayed, you know quaff there yeah that would be kind of bizarre and terrifying to have him you know your typical mormon church boy look at you and say i'm dead inside like it works in that case but that's the voice and the and the visual don't match i mean i can sort of explain that away a little i mean it was done well in that you had you had puss in boots you knew what he wanted because he was he was sure this is what he needed and then you have John Mulaney's character, who's that way, but he's but he's bad. And then you have Goldilocks in the middle, who's not sure what she wants. She just thinks Ironic. like <laughs> right in, in the middle. She she's in the middle, and like when they have the magical map that tells them how to get a wish, hers is the one that's like maybe you don't want to do this. Yeah. So you have the two extremes: the good, the bad, and then the one in the middle. You know, thematically it's fine, but when you're watching it, you're like. <laughs> And that's why, like, when they gave him the little cricket that's supposed to be Jiminy Cricket, and he talks like Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay, this is fine. Like, and, I, and I looked that guy up. I'm like, and he was just a guy I never, he was he was an actual voice actor who was like, just just doing Jimmy Stewart. Oh, you're a monster. You know? Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah. 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 So the, the other stuff, I think, was, was weaker. Um, all the fairy tale stuff, and I think that the beginning, I think especially, like when he's stuck in that house with, the, with like the cat lady, that went yeah. on forever. I was like, when yeah. is this gonna, when is this scene gonna be over? I wasn't quite sure what the point of that was, and you end up meeting the very adorable, um, you the know, dog. <laughs> you know, foil is <laughs> basically what his name should be is just foil, yeah, you know, um. 
and that, and that was fun and it was you know it was it was good to have that contrast and it, you know he, he was a plot device more than a character for sure and he was there to or rather not, not even a plot device but like a character development device to help puss kind of figure out what he's supposed to be doing with himself yeah he, he's the truth there's a character in some movies where that is just like the walking embodiment of the truth yeah and he like every time he talks to them he just tells you exactly what is what is going on and it's like you know if the hero figures out what he needs and not what he wants then the movie's over and that's what happens so the whole idea is that when you get these characters and if they like are adorable with the big eyes and everything the idea is that the hero is supposed to look at that and reject it all the time the, the hero can't accept the truth you know so it's not until the end when he's like we're a family we're friends you're the best thing i've ever had and he like that's when puss in boots is like oh yeah you know <laughs> friendship that's that's what i need or whatever it is yeah you know like he barely has like learning how to make a puppy face is his big thing but it doesn't matter if he can do it because he's still adorable anyway <laughs> yeah so yeah but the thing with the with the the cat lady it didn't serve a function really other than like he spends time in there and like doing his penance and like getting older and like getting out of shape and but th- that could have been anything it didn't have to be that it, it it didn't have to be quite so long. <laughs> you know? mean, to be fair, we're, we're we're clocking in at at a cool, you know, one hundred and two minutes. So like, I think they needed to pad that a little bit. I that's probably what it was. It just it felt so long because it wasn't as funny, and it was odd to watch him with regular cats. Yeah, like it, like when he's like, I'm not eating that, and you see him like cooking bacon over the over the stew. <laughs> And she keeps squirting him with the bottle. Yeah, it, 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 which I thought was a good gag. Like he was trying to be a human, and she was like, "Nope, you're doing it wrong." Uh, yeah, like no, you're not being funny. a cat. But yeah, like you know, you're a cat. And I'm just like, but why is that? All the other cats are like cats, and he's not like this. You know, it's even like the dog is like, "Oh, you can talk," and I'm like, "Yeah, how come he can talk, and all the other ones don't?" So I, I remember I had a student years ago. You know, I, and I work you know, in special education. And so this was a pretty astute young man who had lots of different disabilities. And, um, but I remember he had a, like a picture book of like, I think it was like Arthur, the aardvark, which was like a show on, on Nick jr. Years ago, but it was like a picture book. And then like Arthur has a cat. Well, Arthur is an aardvark. Like that's his, he's an animal. He's not a person. He's just, and, anthropomorphized and the kid looks at me and goes so is that cat like a slave <laughs> and i was like oh my god <laughs> and i went oh my god like how did you like yeah it was a relatively deep and complex thought about something that seemed pretty straightforward like oh the, you know the 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 people looking aardvark has a cat yeah sure because people have cats but the animals and like they're all animals well, animals. They're not well, humans. No, like, that's my favorite gag from the the DuckTales TV show they did where like the person from outer space comes to visit and they're showing her around and they go to the pier and they're feeding the ducks and the, and the alien looks at them and then looks at the ducks and is like, wait, what? <laughs> like, she just like gives them this look. I, I don't understand. <laughs> this is working here. That show, I I never really sort of I, I don't know I just didn't have that didn't have time to watch it, but um, 
Yeah, it had some pretty it, good gags. It had too. some. I mean, it had a. It had one of the best jokes I've ever heard in, in a Disney cartoon. When they pull up to Scrooge McDuck's house, Donald's just exasperated with the three boys, and they pull up to Scrooge's house, and they go, "Oh, so it's happened. You're finally going to sell us." Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm like that was like the third minute of the show. I'm like, wait, what? That was hilarious. Yeah, the whole show is like that. It's pretty funny. <laughs> it's just, like it's just a joke you don't expect coming, and it just hits you in the face like a wet tuna. <laughs> uh, so this, so, this one, that, this, it, it felt like B level Pixar to me. Like it's good. I really enjoyed it. Some parts were clearly better than others. Um, it was surprising. Like there were parts that you like, okay, obviously this is how it's going to go down. And other parts were like, oh, I didn't see that happening, which was nice. It's Um, sort of like it's saddled with its baggage of like, you know, its connection to other films. Like there were these moments where they had like the pop songs in the background. Yeah. Like covers. I'm like, oh, this is just a holdover from Shrek. Like you could just tell that they felt they had to put it in there. Yeah. You know, like it, it didn't need to be there. It didn't hurt the movie, but it didn't help either. I mean, like, like Shrek you, was like, let's get Smash Mouth. And like, this movie does not need Smash Mouth. <laughs> How about the Counting Crows? Wait, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that, I, I'll never forget the interview with the guy from the Counting oh, Crows. We'd like something upbeat and poppy. And like, wanna, I'm we sorry. Want a happy song. He's like, we don't write happy songs. We're the Counting Crows. <laughs> Have you even heard any of our music? Every third song I've written is about me killing myself. Like, oh, yeah. And then he says, "Like so, I wrote a happy song, and then I got I got dumped like two days later." <laughs> yeah. Of course he did. Yeah, because he's a crazy person. Yeah, he's been very popular so, though. Yeah, but like, I don't know that you could have made this movie without having made the other movies. Like some some something about the fact that like, okay, well, this this can't be your first one out of the gate with this character. It's got to be after you've made. You know him appear in basically five other movies and a TV show. Could you finally write the one where death shows up? You know, yeah. No, it had to be that way. Um, mm. Which is fine. And then, like, I said something to my wife, like, this might be better than Shrek, and she was like, "No, Shrek is really good, and it is. The first Shrek is very fun, but you know, it, then it's probably the second best." I don't know. I would say this was better than Shrek because like Shrek was fun, but it was thin, and like you said, it was just one big giant fuck you to the Walt Disney Company. Like it really wasn't. It wasn't rooted in anything. Like this is as much as this is based on a character developed by DreamWorks and then you know marched out to all these other movies in bit parts, and then he gets his own little side gig. Like, this does feel like an entirely independent idea. The thing about Shrek was independent. It was all related to, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg just being fired because Michael Eisner was kind of a schmuck. Mm. And that was the entire film. Even though, like, and they got Mike Myers to write a funny script and do a good voice, and, you know, there was a story there. But... It, there was nothing sort of primal. It was a deeply personal thing, and that's fine. But it's you know, like like we were saying before, like there are themes in this story that are that you know, 
that that go through generations of of the human condition. It's nothing like that in Shrek. No, you Shrek know. is is more on the fairy tale level of, mm-hmm. you know, what does true love really mean and skin deep and uh, friendship and stuff. And every time it's about to break into one of those tropes, like he even says, like like that donkey's about to start singing, and he's like, "Don't sing, don't sing, like just stop," <laughs> you know, like. We don't have to sing a song about friendship to be friends, you know? right. which is antithetical to the genre. But it's also, I think, a little antithetical to, you know, the human relationship of of these emotions and and drama. I mean, the whole point of a musical is that, like, you know, you, you you're experiencing something to a certain point that you the the intensity of the mo the the intensity of the emotion or the de, or the desire to tell that to the other person transcends basic speech and you have to do this insane thing called singing you know and like Stephen Sondheim talks about how like of all the human arts music is the one that really doesn't make any sense like the rest of them kind of make sense performance mimicry makes sense you know, dancing makes sense. You know, makes sense. Moving your body in certain ways, you you know, you get neurological input from that that you don't get from basic movement. You know, drawing and painting and sculpting. And these these are all things that you know basically take the properties of um, mimesis, and you know, it's another outlet for bait for that. But music doesn't do that. It's completely different in that regard, and. It's what makes a musical and opera so powerful. Is it like okay, this is too intense for me to just to say it. It doesn't make any sense to say it out loud. So I I either have to put it in poetry, which is like music, like Shakespeare did, or we have to sing it. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. And by denying that to the characters in Shrek, I think they kind of chop their legs out from under them in some ways, and they 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 let. You know the good people from the Counting Crows and Smash Mouth take that job over for them and kind of overlay it in that sort of like non-diegetic, anachronistic kind of way, which again removes you know your relationship to the character. You don't relate to to Shrek anymore because of any of the you know the the, the songs you hear played over the story, the way that you connect with Ariel. When she says that she wants to, you know, give up her magical life under the sea to walk on land like any other schmuck, you know, <laughs> like you—that's like it'd be awesome to be a mermaid. That'd be so cool, you know. Why would you want to do this, <laughs> you know? But you don't care because the that that because part of your world is just the most magical song ever written for, you know, for you know for a cartoon, if not for a movie. Period. And that doesn't happen in Shrek, and so. That 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 constant knee jerk reaction to like nope can't do that that's too much like Disney, you know, emotionally stunts that movie. Whereas this doesn't have that. They you know this is not a reaction to anything. It's the natural conclusion of developing a character who is arrogant and funny while doing so. But you know, and you know, at some point you have to pay the piper, as they say, and they do with this amazing dog character yeah. who's I, I dead. Really enjoy, I really enjoyed the uh, the death montage where they show all of his deaths. Uh, yes, 
<laughs> is it like shellfish? That was so it was from the most dramatic to the most banal. Like it yeah, was like, it was great. Or he's like playing dog he's playing poker with all the dogs. <laughs> and his five aces. <laughs> he's got five aces and they just that eat him. It was so great. Yeah. That was very funny. Yeah. yeah. No, it's good. It's this is a good movie. It really you know, it if you have I mean, and again, it's it is not a kid's movie. It is definitely like they have they beep. Like they have, you know, like they bleep out cursing. Oh yeah, I was surprised by that. And I was. He really, says hell. He says he hell. The, he looks at the dog. He goes, "What the hell are you talking about?" And it like made me sit up. I was like, oh, "I didn't think they would say that in a kids movie." And then he starts well, cursing. Yeah, my 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 wife's uh, colleague said she'd taken her kids to see it. <laughs> She's, um, I've never really met her more than once. I don't. I, I wouldn't describe her as old fashioned, but she described the film as fresh. And so I was like. Okay, yeah, it is a little bit fresh. Like this is this is a naughty film here. What is she Amish? <laughs> She's That's very funny. Irish. She clutch her pearls. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> she took she she took to her chaise lounge to, uh, you know, as as her fainting couch. Yeah, but but that's so. I think that's okay for some kids. I remember. I was. It made me think of Shazam. That came out like a year or two ago. You know, I never got to that, and I always kind of wanted to because I like the guy Zachary Levi who plays yeah. Shazam, and he was good, and and the movie was good, but it was not always um, for kids. There were some scenes that were scary, and there were a couple of scenes that were like violent, like a person is killed by a magic bolt and they melt, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I remember my wife like sitting next to me, like, "Oh my god!" Like she just sort of got like it was just unexpected, you know. It wasn't like gory or anything. And I was sitting here like, and someone at the time said about that, like, "That's like an '80s thing," you know, yeah, where they were making movies like The Goonies and stuff, where they could just show that stuff to kids and sort of shrug and say, you know, kids like this, and sometimes they search it out, and they will eventually see it. And, you know, it's life. They have to experience it. You know, we're not trying to take their innocence here, but like there are things that will scare them. And sometimes the kid will be shocked. And by the end of it, they'll like be breathing heaven, like, like, like a roller coaster and be like, wow, that was fun. I liked that. You know, so I mean, not every kid, obviously, but a lot of them, they, they want to be thrilled and a little bit frightened because they know it's just a movie anyway. So if you showed this to a 10 year old Puss in Boots, like, he might think it's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. You know, you show it to a four or five year old, maybe not, but yeah, like my kids wouldn't like it at all. Like the whole scene with death was all of that yeah. would have been way, way too much for them. Yeah. yeah. But, a, but a little bit older than that before he's like a teen, he might think it's the greatest thing he's ever seen. Yeah. No, it was, there's definitely a window in there, like a, you know, like a fourth and fifth grade, you know, we're like, you're probably too old for cartoons, but this one is a bit different than that. Yeah. Well, I work with kids of all ages. Apparently, somehow that's happened to me. And I, <laughs> that's true. You really do. You've run from what, like, seven to 17? <laughs> 17, and it's just like, I've managed to pinpoint the age where they, like, learn how to curse, and it's the greatest thing that they can do. Oh, you know? yeah. Just every other word is an F-bomb, and I'm like, oh, my God. God, so you know, it, it happens younger than you think. What's what? Like it's 
like 11? It's about you know, 10 or 11 where yeah. they like start to hear it. And they're like, oh, I'm going to like SpongeBob. There's sentence enhancers. <laughs> and they <laughs> sprinkle them on the spice sentence of life. Enhancers. <laughs> that's great. Oh, it's yeah. Like, that's the kind of stuff that kids like in the movies. You know, it's not constant. They don't curse every other word, but. They throw it in there and they get a good little thrill. That, ooh, he bleeped out something. So it was good. I recommend yeah. it. Highly, yes. So, all right. Well, if you guys want to let us know that we're wrong, you can tweet us or let us know on Instagram. We are at Three Drinks in Pod on both. You can uh, like us on Facebook and complain about us there too. Uh, you can email complaints to Three Drinks in Podcast at gmail.com. You can buy our merchandise at tpublic.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on any of those streaming services, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music. Uh, make sure that you leave ratings and reviews. We'd really appreciate those. Anything else? Uh, no, I think that's it. All right. As always, please drink responsibly, and we'll talk to you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You just wave. Yeah, why not? So they can't see us. Well, it's just implied wave. <laughs> But you actually did it. You were just right there. <laughs> it's a habit. I don't know. <laughs> All right. <laughs>